brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. Blessed Eve of the Nativity of our Lord to you and your family. Today I have an unusual kind of reflection for such a day. Normally a day we spend thinking about joyful things. But today I want us to really take a look at where the church has been the kind of dark things the church tried to deal with just before the council and reflect on what that looks like today because the world is itself seemingly on the brink of catastrophe again. Pius XII gave this address on Christmas Eve 1943, 79 years ago, and it's worth really looking at because the situation he's talking about there could very well come again seems that uh, our benevolent rulers want another conflict like that. It's what they're aiming for. Pius's message here is that any efforts to rebuild the world afterwards should be done in the light of Christ. That everyone should turn away from pure materialism to bringing Christ into the conversation again, to reconnecting ourselves to our blessed Lord. It's a message whether or not another such conflict comes is still valuable, something we should really consider, because in the intervening 79 years, things have not gotten any better, not really, not in a spiritual way, which is the most important way. Let me know what you think of this at the end, please. God bless. Radio message of His Holiness, Pope Pius XII, to the peoples of the whole world, given Friday, December 24th, 1943 on the eve of the Nativity of our Blessed Lord. Once again, beloved sons and daughters of the universe, the great Christian family is preparing to celebrate the magnificent solemnity of peace and love, which redeems and brings brothers in a gloomy atmosphere of death and hatred. This year, too, she feels and experiences the bitterness and horror of an irreconcilable contrast between the sweet message of Bethlehem and the ferocious fury with which humanity is tearing itself apart. Sorrowful were the past years, disturbed by the proud roar of weapons, but the Christian bell, Christmas bells lifting spirits awakened and gave rise to timid hopes, aroused warm and powerful longings for peace. Unfortunately, the world, looking around, has yet to contemplate with horror a reality of struggle and ruin, which, becoming day by day more extensive and cruel, shatters its hopes, and with cold and hard experience, compresses and stifles its most ardent impulses. In fact, what do we see if not conflict degenerating into that form of warfare which excludes all restrictions and considerations, almost as if it were an apocalyptic result generated by a civilization in which the ever-increasing progress of technology is accompanied by an ever-deepening de decrease of the spirit and of morality, a form of war which proceeds without rest on its horrendous path, and matures such destruction that the bloodiest and most frightening pages of past ages pale in comparison with it. With this, the people had to witness a new and immense improvement of means and arts of destruction, at the same time, be spectators of an inner decadence. But in the midst of this dark night, the light of the star of Bethlehem shines to the faithful, which points out and illuminates a path to him, from whose fullness of grace and truth we have all received. The journey towards the Redeemer made in this world with his coming, especially Prince of Peace and the Peace of God, Christ alone can drive away the baleful spirits of error and sin, which have yoked humanity to a tyrannical and demeaning servitude, 
subjecting it to a thought and will dominated and moved by an insatiable desire for goods without limit. Christ alone, who has freed us from the sad bondage of guilt, teaches us to pave the way towards a noble and disciplined freedom, supported and sustained on true righteousness and moral awareness. Christ alone, on whose shoulders dominion rests, with his all-powerful helper can relieve and draw the human race from the nameless anguish that torments it in the course of this life and set it to, this, to the happiness. A Christian who is nourished and lives by faith in Christ in the certainty that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, brings his share of the world's suffering and hardships to the crib of the Son of God, and finds before the newborn child a consolation and support unknown to the world, which gives him courage and strength to resist and remain undaunted without collapsing or fainting in the midst of the most tormenting and serious trials. It is sad and painful, beloved children, to think that innumerable men, while feeling in the search for a happiness that satisfies them in this life, the bitterness of fallacious illusions and painful disappointments, have cut themselves off from all hope. And far how they live by the Christian faith, they do not know how to trace the path to the manger and to that consolation which makes the heroes of the faith overflow with joy in all their tribulations. They see the edifice of beliefs in which they humanly trusted and placed their ideal and shattered, but it was never that they found that one true faith which would have been able to give them comfort and renewal of spirit. In this intellectual moral hesitation, they are gripped by a depressing uncertainty of spirit and live in a state of inertia that oppresses their souls. Those who place their confidence in the world, the expansion of economic life, of the ranks of such embittered and disappointed people. It is not difficult to single out those who place their entire faith in the worldwide expansion of this economic life, considering it more capable of uniting peoples together in brotherhood and promising themselves from its grandiose organization, ever more perfected and refined, unheard of and unsuspected progress in well-being for the human consortium. With what complacency and pride they contemplated the worldwide growth of commerce, the exchange of all goods and of all inventions and productions, going beyond continents, the triumphal journey of widespread modern technology, overcoming of all boundaries of space and time. Today, instead, what do they experience in reality? By now they see that this economy, with its gigantic worldwide relationships and bonds, and with its superabundant division and multiplication of labor, cooperated in a thousand ways to make the crises of humanity general and more serious. While uncorrected by any moral restraint, and with no other worldly gaze that enlightened it, could not fail to end in an unworthy and humiliating exploitation of the human person and of nature, in a sad and fearful poverty on the one hand, and in a proud and provocative opulence on the other. Do not be afraid to present these deluded people of science and economic power at the crib of the Son of God. What will the child tell them, who was born there and is adored by Mary and Joseph, by the shepherds and by the angels? Undoubtedly, the poverty in the state of the Bethlehem is a condition chosen by him purely for himself, not nor therefore does it imply any condemnation or rejection of economic life and what is necessary for the advancement and physical and natural perfection of man, but that poverty of the Lord and Creator of the world, freely willed by him, which will also accompany him in the workshop of Nazareth and throughout his public life, signifies and manifests what mastery and superiority he had over material things, thus indicating with powerful effectiveness the natural and essential ordering of earthly goods for the life of the spirit and for a higher cultural, moral, and religious perfection, necessary for reasonable man. Those who expected the health of society from the mechanism of the world economic market were so disappointed because they had become not the lords and masters, but the servants of the material riches, 
which they had served, freeing them from the higher end of man and making them in an end in themselves. Other deluded people of the past acted and thought similar, similarly, who placed happiness and well-being solely in a kind of science and culture, alien to recognizing the creator of the universe. Those pioneers and followers, not of true science, which is a wondrous reflection of the light of God, but of a superb science, which, giving no place to the work of a personal God, independent of all limitation and superior to all that is earthly, he boasted of being able to explain the events of the world with only the rigid and deterministic chain of iron natural laws. But such a science cannot give happiness and well-being. The apostasy from the divine word, for which all things were made, has led man to apostasy from the spirit, so as to make it difficult for him to pursue highly intellectual and moral ideals and goals. In this way, science that apostatized from the spiritual life, while it deluded itself that it had acquired full freedom and autonomy by denying God, today sees itself punished with a servitude, which has never been more humiliating, having become a servant and almost automatic executor of directions and orders, which take no account of the rights of truth and of the human person. What seemed freedom to that science was a bond of humiliation and debasement, and decrowned as she is, she will not regain her primitive dignity except with a return to the eternal word. The Son of God, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the way of happiness, the truth which sublimates, the life which makes man eternal, is invited to this return. He invites in dumb, penetrating language, with his own coming into the world, those deluded because he does not disappoint the human soul, but gives it the impetus that leads it towards him. Alongside those who live deeply disconcerted by the failure of social and intellectual guidelines, widely, widely followed by politicians and scientists, there is no less numerous group of those who find themselves in great discomfort and pain for the disintegration of their personal and proper ideal of life. It is the great number of those whose goal of life was work and the goal of their labors was a comfortable material existence, but who in the struggle to attain that goal had relegated religious considerations, far away, and neglected to give their existence a healthy direction. The war has torn them away from this usual and beloved activity, which was the value and support of their life. It has torn them away from their profession and their art, so that they feel a fearful emptiness within themselves. That if some can still wait for their work, the war has imposed working and living conditions in which every personal characteristic has disappeared. An orderly family life is no longer possible, nor is that satisfaction of soul. O workers, approach Jesus' crib. Don't you think that cave and that refuge of the Son of God hoard? Not by chance, but by high and ineffable design, you will find only simple workers. Mary, the virgin mother of a working family. Joseph, the father of a working family. The guardian shepherds of the flocks. And finally, the sages from the east. Workers of the hand, of the watches, and of the thought. They bow down and adore the Son of God who with his conscience and amiable silence, stronger than words, explains to all of them the meaning and virtue of work. It is not only the labor of human limbs devoid of meaning and value, nor is it of humiliating servitude. Work is service of God, gift of God, vigor and fullness of human life, merit of eternal rest. Lift up and hold your forehead, workers. Behold the Son of God, who with his eternal Father created and ordered the universe, and having become a man like us, having taken away sin and grown in age, enters into the great community of work, and struggles in his saving mission, consuming his earthly life. He, redeemer of the human race, who with his penetrating grace are being and working, elevates and ennobles every honest work, the high and the low, the great and the small, the pleasant and the painful, the material and the intellectual, to a meritorious and supernatural value before God, thus uniting every process of the multiform human operation in a single constant glorification of the Father in heaven. 
Unfortunate, there are also those who see their hope of happiness failed, dreamed of and placed purely in the enjoyment of a fleeting earthly life, conceived exclusively either as fullness of bodily energy and beauty of forms and people, or as opulence and overabundance of comfort, or as a possession of strength and power. But here today, in the whirlwind of war, the vigor and beauty of so many youth, raised and trained in sports fields, decay and fade in military hospitals, and many young people wander around the streets, harmed or physically made infirm of a fatherland, desolate and reduced to a pile of ruins in various cities of its best regions by aerial operations. If part of the male youth no longer has the strength to toil and work, the future mothers of the next generation, forced as they are to overwork beyond all measure and all time limits, are losing the possibility of providing these people with that healthy increase of body and spirit which favors the life and education of children, without whom the future of the country is threatened by a sad decline. The painful irregularity of work and life, far from God and his grace, and from the bad example enticed and led astray, insinuates and prepares a pernicious relaxation of conjugal and family relationships, so that those in the service of lust tries to poison now much more than before the sacred source of life. From these painful facts and dangers, it appears with stark evidence how, while the reinvigoration of the family and the people was considered one of the noblest purposes in many nations, on the other hand, a physical deterioration and a spiritual perversion are spreading and frighteningly increasing, which only an action curator and educator of various generations will be able to slow, at least partially, make it disappear. If this conflict has caused so many vast ruins of body and spirit, it has not spared the greedy of our time. Sadder is the vision which disturbs and frightens those who aspire to possess strength and predominance. Now they contemplate with, in fear the ocean of blood and tears which bathe the world. The high cost of the conflict spreading across regions of the world and the islands of the seas, the slow collapse of civilization, the progressive disappearance of even material well-being, the destruction of distinguished monuments and very noble buildings of sovereign art, which could be called the common heritage of the civilized world, the sharpening and deepening hatreds, which inflame peoples against each other and give no hope for the future. Come now, you Christians, you faithful, bound by an ineffable supernatural bond with the Son of God who made himself little for us, guided and sanctified by his gospel, nourished by grace, the fruit of the Redeemer's passion and death. You too feel the pain, but with a hope of a comfort that comes from your faith. The present miseries are also yours. The destructive war also visits and torments you, your bodies and your souls, your possessions and your possessions, of your home and your earth. Death has broken your heart and in Afflicted wounds that are slow to heal. The thought of dear distant uh, graves that have perhaps remained unknown, the anxiety for the disappeared or missing, the longing sigh to embrace your beloved prisoners or, do, or, or those who've been expelled again, put you in a pain that crushes your spirit. While a grave and dark future hangs over you, everyone, parents and children, young and old. Every day, and more than ever in this hour, our fatherly heart heals, feels with deep and unchanging affection towards each of you beloved sons and daughters who are in pain and in anguish. But all our efforts cannot suddenly stop this horrific conflict. Don't give life back to your dead loved ones. Don't rebuild your destroyed hearth. Not, don't fully free yourself from your anxieties. Much less is it in our power to reveal to you the future, the keys to which are in the hands of God, who governs the process of events and has marked its peaceful end. However, we can and want to accomplish two things. The first is that we have done and will always do what is in our material and spiritual strength to alleviate the sad consequences of war for the prisoners, the wounded, the missing, the stray, the needy, for all who suffering and trouble of every tongue and nation. 
The second is that in this turning point of the sad time of war, we want you above all to remember the great comfort that faith inspires in us, when it teaches us that the death and sufferings of this early life lose their painful bitterness for those who can, with tranquil and serene conscience, make the church's moving prayer their own in the Mass of the Dead. Heaven and eternal abode. While the others who have no hope find themselves in front of a frightening abyss, and their hands groping in search of a support point, feel the nothingness, not of the immortal soul, but of a nuanced otherworldly happiness. You, on the other hand, by the grace and generosity of a merciful God, in addition to certain death, you have the ineffable divine consolation of the promise of immortality. From such a faith you can draw an inner serenity, a confident moral fortitude, which does not succumb even to the most cruel sufferings. This is a sublime grace and an inestimable privilege, which you must ascribe to the Savior's kindness, grace and privilege, which demands that you respond to it with an action of exemplary constancy and requires a daily apostolate, tending to restore confidence to those who have lost it, and to lead spiritual salvation those who, as shipwrecked in the ocean of present misfortunes, are about to submerge and crash. The path of humanity in the present confusion of ideas has been a path without God, indeed against God, without Christ, indeed against Christ. With this we do not want or intend to offend the wanderers. They are and remain our brothers. However, it is appropriate that Christianity also considers that part of the responsibility which falls to her in today's trials. Or haven't many Christians also made concessions to those false ideas and directions of life, so often disapproved of by the magisterium of the church? Every lukewarmness and every rash bargaining with human respect in the profession of faith and its maxims, every pusillanimity and vacillation between good and evil in the practice of Christian life, in the education of children and the governing of family, any hidden or manifest sin, all of this, and what more could be added, was and is a mournful contribution to this disaster which today is ravaging the world. And who would have ever have the right to consider himself innocent of any fault? Reflection on yourselves and your works and the humble acknowledgement of this moral responsibility will make you perceive and feel in the depths of your soul how dutiful and holy a prayer and an action that appeases and implores the mercy of God and help to save the brothers, giving that honor back to God. So to work, and to work, beloved children. Close your ranks. Do not drop your courage. Do not remain inert in the midst of ruins. Come out to rebuild a new social world for Christ. May the star that guided the journey of the Magi to Jesus shine upon you. The spirit that emanates from him has lost nothing of its strength and its power to heal fallen humanity. It triumphed one day over the prevailing paganism. Why shouldn't it also triumph today when pains and disappointments of all kinds show so many souls of vanity and the aberrations of the paths hitherto followed in public and private life? Great numbers of intellects are searching for new ideals, political and social, private and public, instructive and educational, and feel the inner yearning to satisfy their heart's needs. May the example of your Christian life guide them. Let your ardent word shake them. As the figure of this world passes by, show them what truly life is like, that they know you, the only true God, and he whom you have sent. Through your lip may the knowledge of the Heavenly Father be reborn in the brothers, who, even in times of terrible misery, governs the world with wise and provident goodness, experience a tranquil happiness that comes from a life ardent with God's love. But God's love also makes the soul delicately sensitive to the needs of the brothers, ready for spiritual and material help, ready for any sacrifice that can flourish again, fervent and active in love in everyone's heart. O strength of Christ's charity, we feel it vibrant in the tenderness of our fatherly heart, which, o equally open and tense towards all, makes us inculcate with the cry of our word the work of mercy and helpful love. How many times have we had to repeat with a broken heart the exclamation of the Divine Master? 
I have compassion for this people. Now, how many times we too have to add, they have nothing to eat, especially looking at many regions devastated and desolate by the conflict. It was never a time or moment that we did not feel strongly the contrast between our hardships, not worthy of help, and the gigantic extent of the need of the many, who send their pleading voices and their painful moans to us, first from regions far away, and now more and more also from nearby. In the face of such poverty which grows every day, we address to the Christian world an insistent cry of paternal invocation for help and mercy. Look, I stand at the door and knock. And we do not hesitate to turn with that trust that God inspires in us to the human and Christian sentiment of, the, of those peoples and nations to whom providence has so far spared the direct suffering of the horrors of war, or which, despite being at war, still live in conditions which allow them to give a generous outlet to their intention of mercy and to offer help and sustenance to those who, within the harsh hardships of the conflict and without external help, already today lack what is necessary and will lack it more in the future. For such an invocation, the hope that it will find a profound echo in the hearts of the faithful and of those who feel the spirit of humanity alive in their breast impels and sustains us. While amid the clashes born and exasperated by the conflict, a consoling development of thoughts and resolutions appears ever clearer. We mean the awakening of a solid responsibility in the face of the problems arising from the general impoverishment originated by the conflict. The destruction and devastation that followed imperiously demand reconstruction and relief work for the entire extent of the damage. The errors of the not very distant past are transformed for independent and enlightened spirits into admonitions, to which, both for reasons of prudence and for a sense of humanity, they can never remain deaf. They consider the spiritual recovery and the material restoration of peoples and states as an organic whole, in which nothing could be more deadly than allowing centers of infection to lurk, from which new ruin could arise tomorrow. They feel that in an order of peace, law, and industriousness, no danger should arise or gaps remain in the structure of the entire organization, which would jeopardize its consistency and stability due to the treatment of some peoples in a way that is not in conformity with justice, equity, and wisdom. Close and faithful as we want to be to the due impartiality of our pastoral ministry, we express the desire that our beloved sons omit nothing to make the principles enlightened and equitable justice and fraternity triumph in questions so fundamental for the health of states. Indeed, it is a virtue proper to wise spirits and true friends of humanity to understand that a peace and conformity with human dignity and Christian conscience is never a harsh imposition of the sword, but rather the fruit of a farsighted justice and a responsible fairness to all. But if an expectation of such a peace, which will calm the world, you, beloved sons and daughters, continue to suffer bitterly in soul and body under the blows of hardships and injustice. You must not, however, tomorrow tarnish that peace and do injustice with injustice, or perhaps commit an even greater injustice. On this Christmas Eve, let your hearts and minds turn to the divine child in the crib. See and meditate how in that abandoned cave, exposed to the cold and the winds, he participates in your poverty and your misery. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and of all riches for which men contend. Everything belongs to him. Yet how many times in these times has he also had to leave churches and chapels destroyed, collapsed or crumbling? Perhaps where the devotion of your ancestors had dedicated magnificent temples to him with slender arches and sublime vaults, you can offer him in the midst of the ruins nothing but a miserable abode in a chapel of refuge or in private houses. We praise and thank you, priests and laymen, men and women, who often despising every danger to your life, you have sheltered and kept the Eucharistic Lord and Savior in a safe place. Your zeal did not want what was said of Christ to come true again. He came into his possessions, and they did not receive him from him. Thus the Lord did not refuse to come in the midst of your poverty. He already preferred Bethlehem to Jerusalem, the stable and the crib of the grandiose temple of his father. 
Poverty and misery are bitter, but they become sweet if God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His grace and truth are kept within oneself. He remains with you as long as your faith, your hope, your love, your obedience, and devotion live in your heart. Together with you, beloved sons and daughters, we place our prayers at the feet of the child Jesus and implore him that this be the last Christmas of the war and that humanity may celebrate in the new year the recurrence of the Christmas solemnity, shining with light and joy, a truly Christian peace. And now all of you who bear the responsibility, all of you who by the disposition or permission of God have in your hands the power over the fate of your peoples and that of others, listen to the imploring Eridumini, who from the bloody and ruinous abyss of this immense war rings in your ears. Thrill and warning for all, trumpet blow of the future, judgment announcing condemnation and punishment for those who are deaf to the voice of humanity, which is also the voice of God. Your conflict aims in your strength consciousness may have encompassed whole countries and continents. The question of the guilt of the present situation and the demand for reparations may also cause you to raise your voice. Today, however, the devastations that the world conflict has produced in all fields of life, material and spiritual, already reach such an incomparable severity and extent, and the dreaded danger that with the continuation of the war they will grow into nameless horrors for both sides. Belligerent parties, and for those who, however repugnant, have been overwhelmed by it, appear so gloomy and threatening to our gaze that we, for the good and the very existence of all individual people, say to you, implore you, Rise above yourselves, above any strictness of judgment and calculation, above any boast of military superiority, above any unilateral affirmation of law and justice. Recognize even unpleasant truths and educate your peoples to face them seriously and forcibly. True peace is not the, so to speak, arithmetical result of proportion of forces, but in its ultimate and deepest meaning, a moral and juridical action. In reality, it is not carried out without the use of force, and its very consistency needs to be based on a normal measure of power. But the proper function of this force, if it is to be morally upright, must serve to protect and defend, not to diminish or oppress the law. An hour like the present, capable no less of powerful and beneficial progress than of fatal shortcomings and errors, has perhaps never occurred in the history of humanity. And this hour demands with an imperious voice the war goals and peace programs are dictated by the highest moral sense. As the supreme aim, they must aim not only at the work of understanding and concord among the belligerent peoples, a work which leaves to each nation, wherever its dutiful union with the entire family of states, the possibility to join worthily without denying or destroying itself in the great future post-war action of recovery and reconstruction. Naturally, the conclusion of such a peace would not mean any abandonment of the necessary guarantees and sanctions in the face of any attack by force against the law. Do not expect from any member of the family of peoples, however small or weak, waivers of substantial rights and viable necessities which you yourselves, if they were to apply to your people, would judge unfeasible. Quickly give anxious humanity a peace which rehabilitates mankind itself and against history, a peace over whose cradle the avenging flashes of hatred do not flash. Not the instincts of an unbridled world to retaliate, but let the dawn of a new spirit of the world community, born of world pain, shine forth, a spirit of community which, supported by the indispensable divine forces of Christian faith, will only be able to preserve humanity after this unfortunate war with the unspeakable disaster of a peace built on erroneous and therefore ephemeral and deceptive foundations. Animated by this hope, with paternal affection towards you, beloved sons and daughters, especially to those who suffer the hardships and pains of war in a particularly painful way and are in need of divine comforts, and not less to all those who they respond to our invocation, open their hearts to industriousness and merciful love. Or governing the desires of people are eager to appease them with the olive tree of peace, we impart as a pledge of abundant Heavenly Fathers our apostolic blessing. 
given in Rome by Pope Pius XII on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1943. And it's an interesting address that the Pope gave there. 1943 was not exactly a pleasant year in European history, to put it mildly, but we see now the shadows of conflict and potentially growing a current conflict dominating that seems to have at one point dominated the headlines, but now seems to have faded into the background of our consciousness simply because it's been going on all year. It threatens to go beyond its own present borders. And we also live in uncertain times, too. Here he in this address, Pius XII reminded people their over, their over focus on the material, on the economic and political, and all those things, and how all that withers in the light of the, you know, the the crib and crèche of our Lord. Most easily seen, I think, you know, at Christmas time, and how we should focus less on the material, going forward, and more on the spiritual and taking our, the lessons of our, you know of the faith and applying them to the real life of society. That's what he means when he starts talking about justice in a social sense. He's not talking about that in the way we hear today. He's talking about that and just creating a Christian order, essentially. Something that respects people and is built on the authentic understanding of our Lord. We hear very little of that today, unfortunately. Now we hear talk of justice, but no God even from the highest offices of the church itself. It's a sad situation. A news story is coming following this video, so I hope you found this useful today. I'm Anthony Stein, and as always, pray for the church. God bless.